This is the Women Your Mother Warned You About podcast, sponsored by Sales Gravy. I'm Gina Tremarco, Master Sales Trainer and Director of Coaching Programs at Sales Gravy. Before we get started with this week's episode, I want you to go and check out Sales Gravy University. Sales Gravy University is the place where sales professionals and sales leaders from across the globe go to learn and upscale. And right now, if you're a brand new user and you've never used Sales Gravy University before, you can get your first course for free by using coupon code free course when you go to learn.salesgravy.com. That's coupon code free course when you go to learn.salesgravy.com. And hey, I've got several courses there that you can check out. So I hope to see you there. But let's go ahead and get started with this week's episode. Yeah, I wrote about this in my book. It says, yeah, in most cases, buyers make the decision to buy from us in spite of us, not because of us. (laughs) And it should be our goal in life to change that so that you are the reason that buyers make the decision to buy from you. And you look at almost every product category. It could be true in sales training as well, because we know there are hundreds of companies, if not thousands out there that sell similar products is that, you know, in the mind of the buyer, they all pretty much look alike right? And they say all offer the same things. Well, if they're all like, what's the tiebreaker? It's you, Gina. It's you, Susanna. <laughs> you know, it's, you're the difference. And yeah, we just have to be intentional about putting ourselves in that position where we are the difference. Hey, Warners, welcome to this episode of the Women Your Mother Warns You About, brought to you by Sales Gravy and Sales Gravy University. I'm Gina Tremarco, your one of your co-hosts with my other sassy or saucy co-host, Susanna Gray-Jones. <laughs> Susanna Gray-Jones over there on the other side of the pond, coming soon to America. We are counting down the days to Susanna's visit. Susanna, do you have a um, a word of the week for us by chance? Um, I don't. You put me on the spot, but I always have I always have something <laughs> to say, right? So um I where do we go with this? So do you guys in the USA have something called fancy dress? Fancy dress? No. So um, for those listeners who don't know, Gina is getting married and she is having a bachelorette. <laughs> yeah, Congratulations. Yeah, it's great news. And she's having what <laughs> the Americans know as a bachelorette party, um, was what the English know as a hen party. Yeah. Hen and party, um, right. I was looking up online to see whether there is fancy dress at bachelorette parties. And actually... Americans don't use the term fancy dress. Now, in the UK, (laughs) we use fancy dress as what people do at Halloween uh, or what people do when they want to dress up as a theme. Okay. Um, So I was looking that up and there it was. No such thing in the USA. So in the UK, fancy dress. So on that note, before we digress, before we get on to serious business, do you do fancy dress for bachelorette parties in the USA? Uh, no, but that doesn't mean we can't. I've seen people do fancy dress for birthday parties. I saw a woman um, in her 60s doing a 60s theme birthday party. So 
There's no reason why we can't fancy dress now. No pressure. I have to think about what that theme would be. Awesome. I'm glad we started that. <laughs> okay. Well, you're going to be here for one of those hen parties. So maybe you can come up with a theme. Yes. And I can't get COVID. I'm actually isolating at the moment so that I don't get COVID and get to fly because the cases are very high here at the moment. So okay. everything goes. Well, don't even say it. So enough, of, n- yeah. enough about us. We, there's a male voice here with us. We are so honored and privileged to have one of the ultimate sales guys out there, Andy Paul, who I follow on LinkedIn. And I'm like, I want one of the books that people are talking about. I see your your LinkedIn um, social media marketing going on. I'm like, I need to know Andy Paul. And here he is. Yay. Andy, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. It's- A quick background for those listening. And then um, I hate reading people's bios. And I know I hate reading my bio, but I'm just going to get quick background on Andy before we jump in, because I know Susanna is chomping at the bit, uh, which is probably an American (laughs) phrase to ask Andy lots of questions before I get a chance to. But Andy's hit Accelerate Your Sales podcast was acquired by Revenue.io in 2020 since he renamed it Sales Enablement with Andy Paul. So he's not new. He's not new to this podcast thing. He might actually teach us a couple things yeah. today. Um, his show continues to inspire thousands of sales professionals each week. He's also written two award-winning sales books, Zero Time Selling and Amp Up Your Sales. He's ranked number eight on LinkedIn's uh, list of top 50 global sales experts. And he's consulted with some of the biggest businesses in the world, including Square, Phillips, Grubhub, and more, making him one of the leading voices in the sales industry today. We're so excited to have him. What a privilege. Yes, yes. Um, Susanna, go ahead, take it from me. (laughs) Before I interrupt, (laughs) let's let her interrupt. Um, Yeah, well, first of all, um, it is a massive privilege to have you here. Um, And we we have done a bit of stalking, as you can just see from Gina's research. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, But there was mm -hmm. one particular quote that stuck with me that I heard you say, and you, you meant it as a sort of jokey comment, but it's um i i'd like you to expand on it because um sure. i think it answers a lot of problems that a lot of companies have out there and it was something that you said about bad salesmanship is often down to bad parenting <laughs> and i know you meant it <laughs> i know you meant it as a joke but the reason i want to know but did he no but no, no did wait, he? wait 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 um, well well there's a reason that i want to know this because um sure. for the biggest problems that I personally am solving on a day-to-day are getting a good sales training team, so getting a good sales training mm-hmm. company, and finding good salespeople. And part of that is recognizing um, people's attributes. Sometimes people give their best interview, their best sales pitch at an interview. So I, I, mm. I'm really keen to know what your perception is of finding and how to find those good salespeople out there, those top performers. It's a real hit and miss proposition, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I think that that you know, so much of success in sales boils down to finding the right fit as an individual, right? As me as a seller, so often as individually as is I can do I could do great in one place and not great in another place, another company because it's not the right fit. And so I think for hiring managers is as much as anything, you're looking for that right fit, right? And it's easy to get seduced by people that claim they have a track record doing X, Y, Z and so on. And sure. Yeah. You want to make sure they have certain skills. You want to test for that. You want to do some assessing, 
But at the end of the day, is are they the right fit for culture that you've built? And are mm-hmm. they something that can succeed within that culture? And I think that's that's really a lot of it. I mean, back to your 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 uh, quote of my quote. Um, yeah, I was being semi facetious on that, but not entirely <laughs> because. As you know, from a new book, Sell Without Selling Out, you know, talking about the real human-oriented approach to sales in a more modern sense than what we've talked about in the past, is that this ability just to have normal conversations with other human beings uh, is an important skill. And I don't call it a lost art, but it's maybe a little bit of one and in danger of becoming one because we do so much messaging, you know, an asynchronous mm-hmm. messaging and the way we communicate, and we don't actually talk to people. And then when we have to, we're not very good at it. And, mm-hmm. and so in my case, I was raised by parents who you know, used to dress us up and put us out in their parties and talk to their friends. Right. And, and I used to think that was just, well, they're just showing us off, right. Cause they're proud of their kids. Let's show them off. But I think what they're actually doing in on one hand was a little bit showing off, but the other was teaching us to have conversations with people where there's a mismatch in status. You know, well, kids talking to adults and learning how to ask questions and be interested in other people, which I remember having this lesson being imparted to me by my parents is that, yeah, when you're talking to an adult, ask a question, right? Ask something that might be an interest to them. And I think it's just good basic training uh, as you socialize young people is to put them in those situations where they need to have those conversations because in life, especially in sales, that's a lot of what you do. You know, as a salesperson, you're asking for a C-level executive or some person, like I said, or this, this built-in status, inherent status mass match, and you want them to find you interesting enough to invest some other time and attention in you. I love that phrase, a mismatch in status. Yes. Right? Because that's, that really is what it's, what it's all about. You know, when I used to own an improv theater and did a lot of improv mm-hmm. training for performers, we worked a lot with status, right? And I've been playing with this idea of how to bring it into the sales world as a as a training opportunity, mm-hmm. um, because we would literally train people how to um, talk to different status and to also be able to figure out, yeah, and to figure out status. Right. So, so we would give, you know, your partner would have a different status. You both would have different status and then you would have to, I would know your status and you would know my status. And so everything I did in in an improvised scene with you would be to treating you as a certain status Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And the comedy that would come from that of of us trying to feel each other out Mm. through the process of like, ooh, and at the same time, you're like, what is my status the way he's talking to me? Right. So I find that really interesting. And then when you talk about the kids piece of it, this is what like really hit me as we were ta- as you guys were talking about it. My dad made me work in a flea market as a kid mm-hmm. at age 10. And I remember being confronted by and my dad was a locksmith. My dad was all kinds of things, but that's another story. He taught us how to make keys, right? right. So people would come up and need a key made and and my dad would actually be playing poker in a back room. <laughs> that's another story. And I would be manning the table making keys and you would see these adults look at me like, "Where's the key man?" Right. I'm like, he's not here. I can make the key for you. Right. And they would, um, you see their face change and, and like, well, what if it doesn't work? And I go, what if it doesn't work if the key man made it? Yeah. You would bring, you would bring it back. Right. And so I was thrown in that arena, but, but my father side coaching me through the process. Right. 
of how to just stand in it and not like be intimidated by it. I didn't mean to go off on that tangent, but all those things came to my mind. Yeah. And I think the other thing you learn though is, is that helps for sellers. I think to your point about your improv training, it says not that you're, it's not that you become ignorant or try to dismiss the difference in status, but that you just become comfortable with it. Mm, And so that you understand that you're just talking to another person. Yes. And, and yes, they, yes, they have the power of saying yes or no, that could affect you, but they are just another person. I think this is really interesting. And I think I can see myself now. I feel like I'm, um, I feel like I'm a student, Andy, and I'm trying to impress you with my thoughts on this. (laughs) Um, but, But one thing that I was also taught as a child that still lives with me today, hands up. I mean, the listeners can't put your hands up, but spiritually put your hands up. If you have been in a situation where you're on the phone with someone and they're talking and you just think, when are they going to end this conversation, (laughs) right? We've all been there. Right. Now, the same thing used to happen to me when I was a child and I used to tell my dad about the dream I had last night and I would go into so much detail and my dad would say, Susanna, maybe we changed the subject now, okay? And he taught me (laughs) that as a result of that, he said, there's something called your antennae. Think of those insects with the antennae. Mm -hmm. And he said, you should always be thinking that person that you're talking to, are they getting bored of what you're saying um, in their filters? So go into Mm -hmm. their mind and what you're saying is that of complete interest to them as much as it is what you're saying. So I, what you were saying there, Andy, and what I believe that parenting plays a part in it is always whatever you're saying, how is this actually interesting the other person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then there's looking for the signals. So yeah. And it's, if you can learn that as a child to some degree, right. I mean, mm-hmm. we all get enthusiastic about things. We want to you know, express that enthusiasm and so on. But it happens so often. It happens so often, doesn't it? Yeah. Like, how many times do we find ourselves in these situations where someone is talking and you just think, when are they going to stop? When are they going to stop? Hopefully not with me, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm sure it happens to all of us. But I think that, yeah, I think part of that is just maturity. But I think your father did great by you in, in passing that lesson along because I certainly observe sensitized early on to just yeah to as you talked about us how are you being received so to expand on that question to get a bit Mm. deeper andy paul famous Mm. author successful salesperson tell me if i was telling you tomorrow i want you to hire the dream top elite salesperson how would you go about it that's a great question um I'm just trying to steal info now. <laughs> well, what I would, well, what I would, what I would do actually is, you know, I'd go talk to some customers and say, yeah, you are going to make a decision or have made a decision on this, this type of product or service that we're going to sell. What do you need from a seller to help you go through your process? What are the attributes that are useful to you? Mm-hmm. And, and use that as a starting point mm-hmm. because oftentimes it's no one ever asks the buyer. Right. It's like, oh, we want to hire a hunter. We want to hire a closer. We want to hire a blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, how's that help your buyer? Mm. I mean, does a hunt being a hunter help your buyer? Um, being a closer help your buyer? How about a curious, open-minded problem solver? Oh, that would help. And so I would start by yeah, understanding the experience our customers or our customers have had purchasing product and what they found with things, the attributes would help them. Yeah. Use that as a starting point. Yeah. 
for me, I, I, I don't have a type. I've hired people from all across the spectrum. I, one guy, one of the most successful people worked for me at one company, uh, was pathologically shy. Okay. Figure that for a salesperson. I mean, literally, I, I, could sit, I sat in the lunchroom across from him for four years. He still could barely bring himself to say hi to me, but put him in front of a customer and he was just what they wanted. He was quiet, but he knew this, his newest stuff. Uh, he understood what their needs were, soft-spoken, but was able to influence the choices that they made because he had this incredible credibility. And at some point, someone saw something in him at interview, despite the well, that fact that he was shy. I brought him into, I brought him into, at this company, I brought him into the sales team from engineering. And what did you see in him? Just that, just from talking to him. I thought, you know, he really knows his stuff. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to, in this particular company, uh, that actually has a fractional VP for them, is, is that they did a really good job creating inbound lead flow. But the people I had talking to the, the leads weren't very, very good. They weren't very knowledgeable about the product and service. And it's kind of a technical product. And so, yeah, I thought we need to get somebody more technical. And so I had met this gentleman. I knew he was yeah, not conventionally shy. No one else would probably have interviewed him if he'd applied for a sales job somewhere. But he just knew his stuff. Mm. And he was really hesitant. He said, you know, I, I, I can't do that. I, I can't convince people to buy something they don't need. I said, well, that's great because that's not what we're doing. We're doing is we're helping people solve problems. And don't you do that as an engineer? You solve problems? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can do that. Okay, great. Let's come try it out. I love that. And he was fantastic. He was fantastic. It's just, everybody's just, for me, I'm looking for people that are curious. I said, the curious, open-minded problem solvers. That's what, that's what I want. That's, that's, if you ask, sum it up for me, that's what I want. I, well, I think that, I think that goes hand in hand with, with your book, with your new book, because you talk about human-centered selling. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking about human-centered, I'm, and I'm huge on this because obviously because of my improv background, everything that we do in improv is about humanizing and creating relationship with the audience. Well, and, and also it's, it's about being in the moment, right? Right. And this, this is the thing that's right. to me is just so important about this human centered selling is that I'm not being driven by a script. I'm not listening right. to you to respond. I'm listening to you to understand, right? I'm, I'm going to be mm-hmm. reacting to you in the things right. you say, as opposed to just having my scripted responses I, that's, right. I think improv training for salespeople is a fantastic idea. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's doing me well. Yeah. <laughs> it is definitely doing me well as my niche. And when you take that and then you combine it with frameworks and structure, that's where the win is, right? Because mm-hmm. we need we need some framework. We need, you know, I'm I'm huge when it comes to discovery on using improv as a way to flow through a discovery mm-hmm. without following it question by question right. in any kind of linear order, right? So it's it's going in the moment, like you said, so that it feels fluid. I'm curious as to any other thoughts you might have on what else salespeople can do to keep their selling non-salesy and human-centered. What would be some of those tips? Well, the first thing is, I said, just to make it about the buyer. So how do you, how do, you do that? And it starts with just a mindset shift. So, so often sellers are socialized, if not trained, to believe their job is to go persuade somebody to buy their product. Well, when you do that, this whole idea of sort of understanding the buyer and their requirements and their needs sort of goes out the window because you don't really care about that. You're just trying to persuade them to buy your product regardless. 
And so the mindset shift is you have to think, okay, my job is not to persuade somebody to buy my product. My job is to listen to them, understand what are the most important things to them, to the buyer, relative to the challenges they face and the outcomes they want to achieve based on addressing those challenges. And then my job is to help them get that. So you think about, oh, that's yeah. my perspective. That's, oh, that's what I'm doing. Well, that's real different than going out and trying to persuade somebody. It's like, mm-hmm. I'm, here, I'm here to help you. I can only help you if I really understand the things that are most important to you. And I can only do that if I earn the trust of you to be able to ask these questions, to be able to yeah. stick my nose into your business sufficiently so you'll open up to me. Definitely. It's move. I love the way you said that, but I think it's, it's moving away, isn't it? It's moving away from, I am trying to sell to you, but I'm actually going to try and get inside your problems, inside your mind, um, especially in the UK. And I think everywhere, as Gina said in our previous podcasts, um, people don't like the feeling of being sold to. The minute I get well, no. onto a discovery call, I always try and disrupt the fact that I'm trying to sell to you. And in some cases, they are so defensive about being sold to that you have to almost say, I'm not here to sell to you. I'm here to find out whether we could be a good fit for you. And it might be that we're not. And that's okay. And people look so relieved. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, the fact is you can't hide from the fact you're in sales. We're in sales, right? And I I use the term in my book is, yeah, you're, you're trying to become a giver with an agenda. Right. It's okay to be transparent with the buyer that you're here to help them solve a problem. You're going to sell them something and help them solve a problem, but you're not going to succeed unless they succeed. So, yeah, Zig Ziglar, I think it was said, you know, you'll get everything you want out of life if you help enough other people get everything they want in mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. That's, and it's okay to be transparent about that. You know, I, um, I had a call scheduled this week with a prospect that I'm still in the, the cycle with. Um, He's not the ultimate decision maker. I knew the process would be longer. And this week's call was to see where we were in the process Mm -hmm. of trying to get all the stakeholders involved. And I always do a confirmation. And he's um, actually in Denmark. And I emailed him and said, hey, see you tomorrow at three, right? Like I confirmed the appointment. And his response was, "I, I still have no answers so it does if you don't want to get on a call i understand right so he's got his defenses up mm-hmm. cuz i mean he knows we we know it's we're selling and i said um that's cool let's talk any let's just catch up sure right and so in that call right even though i knew he didn't have answers i was able to get him to open up and just talk about what's going on mm-hmm. and get more information exactly. and find out exactly. I finally found out exactly who the decision maker is. Mm-hmm. And I found out what was frustrating him about their sales kickoff two weeks ago, um, that the training that they had for two hours sucked. And, you know, I was able to dig deeper and continue to build that relationship and then leave him feeling like it was in his control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and also what you did, I think it was really important there was that so often we train sellers that, okay, here's this box in this process. That's discovery. And your questions all fit in that box. And then once you're mm-hmm. done, you move on. Instead, it's like, no, you, as you did, you keep asking questions, keep asking questions. Right. Because right. you're always going to learn more about what's real, as you said, what's really important to them or who the real decision makers are that this thing is most important to. And and I, again, going back to what you said, you've said it a couple of times and I want to reinforce it because I agree with you. It's the curiosity factor. I mm. think this is this is where the true win is, where you when you're truly curious and that goes hand in hand with what Susanna was saying is 
saying things that are be, being of interest, not just interesting to you, but what's interesting to them on top of curious. Like, I just, I want to know more about your business. I really want to know more about you. I spend more time learning about you before I even get to the business. Yeah. There's a great quote in my book uh, from Clayton Christensen. I'd written a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, a famous business writer and fortunately passed away um, a couple of years ago. But he said, uh, you know, questions are places in the mind where answers go. Mm. You don't ask the questions. There's no place for the answers to go. Oh, I love that. I must yeah. say that is awesome. And I yeah. am definitely going to be ordering your books, by the way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, it's available in the UK. If I'd have had time to order it two <laughs> days ago when we got this booked in, I, I, I would have. But um, it's interesting because Gina's talking very much about our process that we do at Sales Gravy, which is selling, training um, mm-hmm. and coaching. Um, right. And I'm finding it fascinating because I'm relatively new to selling training because um, I've always worked in recruitment where you've been selling people, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, when you're selling training, I find it fascinating how some people and companies, big companies, are like, yeah, 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 that's great. No, we'll take you, we'll take you, send us the invoice. And you're thinking, hmm, you need to be asking me more questions because finding the right company to do your sales training for your staff is a crucial decision, right? And you, you can't yeah. you can't shortcut yeah. that process. It is, but you're running against up into what I think is one of the real problems, which is that it's just a, you know, for, <laughs> At leadership levels, they don't generally take sales seriously enough. And so it's, yeah, this training is a box to be checked, Mm. right? We've got an obligation. We're going to do it. And you get that sort of, yeah, 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 type attitude where actually should be a lot more thought put into, yeah, what are we training people? How are we training people to do it? You know, this whole idea I talked about before is, you know, have you ever asked your customers Oh, what their experience is working with your sellers. There's actually organizations out there that can help you with this, that, that do these types of survey work in depth interviews with customers. I mean, there's a company in Austria called Alinea partners and they do secret shopping, a B2B buying software. And they have, you know, 160 different touch points that they, that they measure during a process from the buyer's perspective. So they give you this idea Mm -hmm. is like, what's it like to experience you as a seller? Yeah. And we're so cloistered about this in general in sales, what's really the perspective we need to bring to it is if we really want to be human centric, let's find out how we affect the humans we sell to. Exposing the blind spot, right? It's um... Yeah. Well, it gets out of our comfort zone because we're going to have to admit that, yeah, again, as a point I make in the book is when you look at the data and yeah, I just saw a new study or is written about in a book, a new book I just read quoting a study of uh, 5,500 B2B buying organization, you know, entities that bought stuff um, or excuse me, on the selling side. And you know, their average win rate across all multiple industry types was 17%. When you think about that, it's okay. You're, you're closing such a small percentage of your most qualified opportunities because it's based on opportunities in your pipeline that you said you're going to close. You close 17% is, yeah, I wrote about this in in my book, it says, yeah, in most cases, buyers make the decision to buy from us in spite of us, not because of us. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it should be our goal in life to change that so that you are yeah. the reason that buyers make the decision to buy from you. And you look at almost every product category. 
it could be true in sales training as well, because we know there are hundreds of companies, if not thousands out there that, that sell similar products is that, you know, in the mind of the buyer, they all pretty much look alike, right? And basically all offer the same things. Well, on what, what's the tiebreaker? If they're all alike, what's the tiebreaker? It's you, Gina. It's you, Susanna. <laughs> you know, it's, you're the difference. And yeah, we just have to be intentional about putting ourselves in that position where we are the difference. You've given me lots of ideas here because I think if I go back into my sales director role, those are the two most important things, right? So it's getting the right salespeople, the right sales staff, and getting the right sales training, and then hopefully the right sales training for your management as well. Um, and that's something that I've never thought of is we always go, what attributes do we want in our organization? Great. We want that. But what do our customers want? Mm -hmm. What can they see? Because those are the people funding our business. Those are the people. And I, I, I haven't thought about it like that before. And I think it's completely right, especially with the recruitment piece as well. Well, and then I think when you add coaching into it is because, yeah, I think training is important, but if you're asked most sellers, you know, who's been the biggest influence on sort of their development as a salesperson, they'll tell you their manager, right? Yeah. The person that's coaching them on a day-to-day basis or week-to-week basis is, um, yeah, we need to get better at coaching. You know, I think yeah. that this is sort of the, for me, the most, if you look at the weakest link in the chain, and this is not criticizing anybody, the weakest link, the most important link are the same, which is our frontline sales managers. and. In general, I think throughout the sales world and you know business is we don't help them enough. Mm. You know, we promote these people up from sales, and oftentimes they've got just a minimal amount of sales experience. And then we put them into management roles in terms of years, and then we yep, put them yep. into management role, and we don't train them, we don't coach them, we don't give them enough tools to really understand what they're doing, and we wonder why a lot of sellers aren't making quota. Well, this is part of the reason is. Yeah. We didn't help the manager help the seller. I just I just got yeah. off a, a call with a client that I've been working with and now we're starting to pivot into sales training for the manager specifically. And and they've been a longtime client of ours. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's exactly what the what what the client said. He said, you know, we spend so much money on everybody else except for the managers. Right. And we realize that we need we have to put some money into that. So that they know that we're dedicated to their development and their success. Well, I would make the case, and I've I do this somewhat hyperbolically, is is that you know in the US we spend $15 billion a year on sales training, according to LinkedIn. And I would estimate we spend 90% of that on training the individual contributor. I'd say, well, what if we flip those ratios and spent 90%? on management and our frontline managers and 10% on sellers, what would happen to sales results? And I argue that they would be no worse and probably better because I I would agree. Yeah. And it's just, again, let's get back to the point before it's just, yeah, sales training. Let's check the box. Let's do that. We did that. Right. As opposed to saying, yeah, how do we, who's really has the big influence on our performance and how do we help make sure they're the best they can be? Yeah. In your book, you've got, it says, ask, Six types of questions then that unearth buyers' deepest challenges. Yeah. Can you give us one of those questions? Just a sneak peek to what everybody's appetite to the go by. Oh, sure. Well, why one type is I call it insight questions. And these are great discovery triggers and conversation triggers. 
which is you're asking the buyer something about their business that they probably should know the answer to, but likely don't. And the source of, of these questions, you know, these you could just deliver a prepackaged commercial insight to a buyer, but when you ask it as a question, it's you know, they stop and think. And the source of, of these questions comes from your experience with your existing customers, right? Every what you want to do is talk to your customers, and companies don't do that enough. And find out what are the use cases that they're deriving the biggest amount of value from. And if you really dig, what you find is that oftentimes this the biggest sources of value that your customers are getting from your product or service is not one they anticipated when they made the purchase decision. And you want to you want to collect these and you want to arm your salespeople with these. And in my case, as a sales consultant over the years, one of the things I really help companies with is improving their sales productivity, but not not quantity of activities, but actual productivity, meaning revenue generated per hour of selling time. Right? Productivity is the rate of output per unit of input. So what's the rate of revenue generation per hour of selling time? So when I have a conversation with a CEO during an exploration meeting, I'll ask, so how much revenue are you generating per hour of selling time? Your average sales rep. Now, 99.99% of the time, they have no idea, but they think they should. But it makes them wonder. Right. And so that's an example of an insight question, something they reasonably should know, but don't. And then they want to dig into it, say, well, why is that important? And yeah, off we go. Oh, I love that. I love that. Do you hear that, Warners? That is a great, that is a great nugget of information that comes from Andy's book. So um, we'll just take one of the six. Now they have to go get the book. They have to go get the book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can talk about all six and they still want to go get the book just because they want to see how to implement it. But well, if you're if you're feeling crazy, we'll take we'll take another one. Well, another one is is <laughs> is I call impact questions. These are my favorite types, is 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 to ask always phrase questions as often as you can in the in the sense of you know, what is the impact of making this change? Or what's the impact of not making a change? But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, what's the impact? What would the impact be on you if you were able to do ABC? And what you're doing is you so again, sort of forcing the buyer to pause and think about, well, what would the impact be? What does the future look like? Yeah. And what you do is you layer those. So you do it at an organizational level. What the impact be on the company? What the impact be on your team? What the impact be on you personally? And you want to be able to ask those questions at all three levels because mm-hmm. you need to be able to gain this insight into not only what this means for or what this buyer thinks it means for the organization, what they think it means for themselves. Because if you have five stakeholders on a decision, on a buying committee, let's say, is everybody, as humans, we look at things from two perspectives. Is this good for the company? Is this good for me? And so if you have five stakeholders, you really have 10 because you have 10 different perspectives you have to be able to reconcile and then build consensus around. Because if there's somebody that thinks, yeah, this is great for the company, but Ooh, this is going to make my life hard, or this may mean a, a change in my job. They can hold the whole thing up. Yeah, really is thinking about that individual stakeholder and what's important to them mm-hmm. and their emotion and their emotional outcome from it. Yeah, yeah. And I give the example is is a company I worked at. I was part of a team. We were acquiring four divisions of another company, and yes, yeah, transformative for our company I was working for to do that for me they were going to want me to move across country to help manage the acquisitions. And I was like, no, this is a great 
great decision for the company. This is not a good one for me, but that's fine. It was for me, it was the, the spur to go start my yeah. own company. But um, yeah, it's it just happens that way. And so you need as a seller, you need to know that. I love that. And I think my my question for you, as I know we're sadly getting near the end now, um, which is always horrible, especially when we've got great guests like you. We want to keep you forever. Right, keep you forever. Um, but you've clearly transformed many businesses. Um, you've written successful books. What's next? What's next for Andy Paul? What problem do you want to solve for hmm. the salespeople in the world? There's, there's several I'm trying to, when I still have uh, energy to do it, is, is one is we're still not aligning how we sell with how our buyers buy. And so this book I just published, Sell Without Selling Out, is a start to that. I think the next part of it is right now we have a sales process and a buying process, and they are described in different terms. And the fact is that we should have one common set of terminology that both buyers and sellers use to talk about where the buyer sits in their journey. I believe that until we sort of have that alignment, we're still going to have these sort of underlying performance issues that come up because, again, it's all going to be about us and what we need as sellers as opposed to how are we helping the buyers. So that, that's one. And then the other one is, yeah, we're doing work and partnering with some people to really try to change this definition of what productivity means in sales. Because, and I described my definition of it earlier, is because too often now it's just about activity, right? Oh, I was really productive today. I made 50 calls. And my response would be, well, sure, but how many of those actually led to something that's going to result in an order? Only those things are really productive. The rest of them were just activity. And so we have to change mindsets around leadership in the leadership to say, yeah, are we really measuring the right things? Which I contend we're not. Mm-hmm. And, so and for instance, is quota still relevant? I suspect not. Uh, when so few people meet it, is it relevant anymore? You know, if you only have 40% of sellers roughly hitting their quota, does it still have any value? And so I think we need to change that as well, which is for the benefit not only of, of organizations, but for sellers too. Absolutely. And I started off as a sales manager thinking numbers, numbers, numbers. It's the hardest thing to get people who are new to sales to pick up the phone. And absolutely, as Jeb says, it is about the quantity and it is about the quality. Um, but I wrote my whole KPI system for the whole company based on numbers. I was thrilled with it. I could see exactly what everyone was doing. But what I then found was that I had people who were hitting those numbers and they were saying, Susanna, I'm, I'm doing what you said I've got to do, but I'm not getting the results. So it was over a few years, a lot of reading books, great books like yours, which I can't wait to read, that I realized I need to change this whole KPI system and it needs to have be completely outcome-based and it can't be a single metric because everyone has different ratios. And it was from that that I created unique KPI forms for each different person based on what their average ratios were so that they were competing with themselves, not with the standard. This is what you need to be doing. There's a famous British economist. He's since passed away. But his name was, I think, Charles Goodhart. Uh, could have the first name wrong. But he came up with this famous formula called Goodhart's Law. And what he said was, and it's been proven out mathematically, apparently, based on what I've read, is, is that 
when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. So let's take quota, right? <laughs> when quota as a measure becomes a target. And the reason being is what people do is they optimize their processes to achieve the target. So mm. our ability to produce a certain amount of revenue as sellers is actually artificially constrained by the quotas we give people because we, <laughs> we structure our processes to achieve that number when that number, hell, that number could be half of what we really could produce. Mm, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So just that argument alone, I believe, shows that, that quotas are an effective way. You know, I think we can devise measures of productivity, as I described before, and I've actually managed organizations with this decades ago, where I knew exactly how many hours of time it took an individual seller to produce a certain amount of revenue. And also collectively, how many hours they required from other people in the organization to be able to achieve that amount of revenue. Mm. So if I've had two people that yeah, both hit quota, but one required twice as many selling hours or required twice as many hours of support from sales engineering and management and so on, then I had a lot of information to work with to say, well, what's different with this person? Why do they require so much support? What do we need to help them learn? How do we need to help them get better, become more self-sufficient necessarily? Or So it's we just have to have better ways of, of measuring what we're doing. And we're still, as I like to say, we're still measuring and managing sales like it's 1910. Well, we could go on and on, but it's, <laughs> I don't know what time it is in the UK right now. What is it? 10, it's almost 10, 10 PM. PM. 10 PM, my <laughs> bedtime. Time for you to go to bed. It is, but do I get yeah. to ask my would you rather question? You do. You do get to ask your famous ending of the show question. Andy's like, what is coming next? Oh, good. So, yes. As I, know, <laughs> I want to know what's coming. We always coming. do a would you rather question at the end. It can be quirky, it can be serious, and it can just be okay. a bit <laughs> odd. But and I never know what it, it's going to be. So here we go. We got a nice and simple one today. <laughs> yeah, so I yeah, want you well, to imagine I'm... that you had to choose one of these things. So, okay. Andy, would you rather have a million dollars or a million laughs if you had to choose one or the other? Uh, yeah, life is short. I'd probably go with the laughs. Um, I, yeah, I've been very fortunate in my career, so maybe that influences uh, some of my my choice of that as well. Yeah, as you get older, as you just get much more aware of the fact that we don't have forever <laughs> in this world, and yeah, you find yourself thinking more about the things that you find are pleasurable and wanting to do more of it. Yeah, great answer. It's that whole, does money bring happiness thing? And I think, you know, you can spend for ages thinking, I want to buy that really expensive yacht or whatever. But actually, if you're, if you're on that yacht and you're not laughing, then <laughs> is that yacht even very good? Probably not. But um, yeah, yeah. I think there are studies actually done. I remember reading it sometime in the last 10, 20 years. And I think even Margaret Mead may have done some studies about this. But it's just like, yeah, happiness doesn't correlate to income at all, right? I mean, there are societies where people are, no material possessions practically at all. And they're much happier than yeah. many of us in the Western world. But don't um, give up selling. So this yeah, <laughs> don't buy you happiness. That's for sure. Um, Gina, what about you? No. I no. think you're going to be surprised by my answer. You always agree with the guests. So uh... I always agree with the guests, but except for today. Ooh. Can you, 
I, and I think oh, the surprise go. is more because I come from a comedy background, right? So God knows I've had a lot of laughs and have created a lot of laughs. My gut was give me the million dollars because I could buy more laughs. I don't that that was my gut reaction to it. Answer probably been different twenty yeah. years ago. Yeah, um, exactly, yeah. exactly. Been so very, depend, been very fortunate. Depends on where you yeah. are, but I, so. I think maybe because I made a living um, making people laugh. So now I'm like, no, mm-hmm. let me pay people to to make me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's it. Maybe that's where I'm. You always come from. up with an interesting reason for your there answers. You so I love that. <laughs> what about you, Susanna? Didn't I say? Um, I agree with Andy oh. because, um, yeah, because everything is easy when you're laughing, and even the horrible things that happen in life, like pain or anxiety um, can be cured by laughter, but you can't use money to cure those things. So um, there we are. That's my answer. I love it. I love it. And again, I guess because I'm like in constant laughter and I have gone through so many horrible things in life, as many people may have, that what got me through everything and got me to success was laughter. Yeah. Yeah. So there there you have it. What a lovely note to end on. Yes. Thank you so much, Andy, for being on this episode of The Women Your Mother Warns You About. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Good. I'm I'm happy. um, It was fun for you. If people want to connect with you, learn more about you, get your book, hire you, all those things. What are the best? All those things. All those things. What are the Mm -hmm. best ways for them to reach out to you? So LinkedIn, find me on LinkedIn, connect with me, message me on LinkedIn. Uh, You can do it the old fashioned way. Email Andy at AndyPaul.com. You can come to my website at andypaul.com and and download a free chapter of the book if you want to preview it before Ooh. buying it, or if you just want to buy it. Could do that Amazon, too. anywhere you shop, either physical bookstores or online, you can find it. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you once again, and thank you to our listeners to listening to this episode, and of course, thanks to Jeb Blunt and Sales Gravy. Hey, if you want to up level your game, go check out salesgravy.university where you can get courses um, from. Uh, recruiting. I think Susanna's got a course coming up to some of the stuff I do, like selling with stories and creative selling. So go check that out and uh, go to womenyourmotherwarnsyoubout.com to find out more about us and the show. Um, That's all I've got. Susanna, you got any final words? No, but I will be logging on to Amazon to buy um, Andy's book. And Andy, now that you've said we can reach you on LinkedIn, you might find I'm uh, annoying you a lot for the next uh, <laughs> the next few years. That's, that's fine. That's fine. I Thank you it. very much. Fantastic. Awesome. Bye, Warners. Bye, Andy. Bye.